Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Today, Rotto talks through episode 11, the penultimate episode of my first year of podcasting. And, heck, it might be the next to last because... As we speak right now, I am in the middle of my yearly fundraising campaign, which you can find at http://2016.rado.com. And, you know, there's no guarantee we're going to hit the stretch goal to do another year of podcasts. I'm pretty confident at this point, based on the first day, that we are definitely going to do another year. We're going to hit the main. But, you know, after the first day out of the gate, things really slowed down quite a bit. And so while I'm sure we'll hit our target, hitting the stretch goals for doing videos with Jen, doing additional podcasts, doing live broadcasts, well, I don't know. Uh, If we don't hit it and episode 11 and episode 12 are the last ones we ever do, well, we'll try to put on a good show and maybe this will be a nice little standalone 12 episode thing, or maybe not. I don't know. It's it's too early to say. Uh, I'm actually kind of regretting only having said it for two weeks. Plus, this year, I don't have any advertising on Board Game Geek like I did last year. Uh, last year, Board Game Geek was really, really awesome and uh, basically allowed me to put ads up for the Kickstarter. I knew that drew a, a lot of traffic. But I don't know. We'll see what happens. Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see que sera, sera, as they say. And in the meantime, we are here, we are ready, let's just start doing the normal podcast. Although actually, I think we're going to flip things around a little bit. This time we're going to start with the Q&A, because Jen and I have to make a trip over to the mainland, and we're going to be kind of stuck with nothing to do for a couple of hours. And so I'm thinking we will just, I'll take my laptop along, I've got the questions and answers, and we'll just answer them sitting in the car while uh, waiting. For, uh, you know, for our appointment to be done, basically. And uh, so we'll see how that goes. We'll be out and about, roving reporting, as it were. And then after that, you know, once I get back home, I'll do the, hey, what new exciting games have come along? What hot topics are there uh, you know, for top tens that I recently covered? And I'll also spend some time going over my recent adventures in the States, you know, most notably hanging out with the Dice Tower crew, filming a couple of top tens, which maybe you've seen by now, and uh, the Gamma Trade Show, and I'll talk all about that at the end. So, a lot to talk about. Let's get going right after this. Okay, we're back, and it is now time for questions and answers. Once again, I am joined by Jen. Hello. Hi, honey pie. And we are just going to go through the mailbag of what's shown up over the last three days. And as always, you guys can send us more questions to questions at rado.com, R-E-H-D-O.com. And we'll try to hit them in the next podcast, which... Maybe the final one. Who knows? Ooh. We're still waiting to see if we're going to hit those stretch goals. <laughs> but worry about that another time. Right now, let's get going. With our first question from Steve, 
Honey Pie. Steve-o. Steve would like to know. Ah, oh, well, we might both be able to feel this one. Yeah, although he was wondering what my take was on the news that Lionhead Studios is being closed down. Oh, yeah. Yep. And also, if no one is asked, can we get the rest of the post-Nintendo story? Oh, someone's already asked. Yes. And the answer to that, Steve, was no. Apparently, the only way you'll get to hear the rest of the post-Nintendo story is if you meet me in real life. Because Jen will not let me broadcast the sordid details of that <laughs> on the internet for fear that Johnny Law will track me down in Malta and make me pay my dues to society for what I done. <laughs> um, uh, I would actually like to clarify that it we're making this into sound like it was some big huge thing. It really was not a big thing. It was not. It's it's just it's actually it is a funny thing. But on the other hand, there's something about saving for all time and putting it out there in the universe that I just does not agree with me. So, <laughs> so that is more the reason I don't want to do it. Okay. Then, then you're not worried the, about being ashamed of the story. The itself. Washington state hiring bounty hunters to track us down in Malta. Well, you know, we go back to Washington fairly frequently to see your mom. It so is true. It wouldn't true. be that hard. To... You might be waiting at the airport for us. <laughs> I think on the ferry. Yeah. On the, the Bremerton ferry. ferry. There you go. Um, so that would be Steve's second question. His first question is a uh, take on Lionhead. And I guess my take is, well, it's really sad. That is very sad. It's, yeah, it's, it's very, very heartbreaking. I mean, how long was I there? I was there for three years, I guess, maybe four. Yeah, almost four, I think. Yep. And when I went there, I was originally hired to work on the console version of the movies because when I was in Texas, I had done the console version of The Sims, and they thought, oh, well, look, he did that really well. That was very, very well received. It was a big, big, big hit, and it was something that they said couldn't be done to, you know, get this very popular PC game working well on a console and, and make it transfer over, and movies was going to be Lionhead and Activision's version of The Sims. It was going to be this big, gigantic hit, and so they hired me for that, and Jen, I flew over, and uh, for my first... Gosh, must have been three or four, maybe even half a year I was there. Uh, movies was getting finished up, and I did. I was working on a prototype for Movies Console, which was phenomenal. I was going to be, I was incredibly proud of it. I think that was going to be one of the neatest games I ever worked on. We had this really cool system where, um, you know, we, we had to consoleify this, you know, mouse driven PC game. And the idea I had was that. If you were going to be this Hollywood, you know, studio executive, if the play world was, you know, the, the back lot of your studio, that you would actually drive around in one of those little golf carts hmm. that you always see, you know, in, in movies. And so you, instead of being a mouse that you were moving around, you were driving around, zipping around. And we, we had it working. We had the physics of it. And as you turned really sharp corners, it would tilt. And, um, you know, in the original movies, you would actually pick people up with your mouse and drag them around and put them in buildings. So we had a thing where you would drive up to people and you would shout at them through a bullhorn. And they'd say, yes, sir. And they'd get in line and you'd have this little army of people running along behind your go-kart as you were zipping around from one side of the studio to the other to say, okay, you director, go work on that film. You actress, go. It was adorable. And it was, it was going to be awesome. And then unfortunately movies failed to, it, it, it bombed. It was not the big success. And 
the game got canceled. And so in short order, I switched over to working on, well, I briefly worked on the PC version of Fable, Fable the Lost Chapters, and then I was one of the co-leads on Fable 2, me and Dean Carter, and I did that for, gosh, almost three years, and Fable 2 turned out to be a pretty big success. I'm proud of it, and um, or certainly my part of it, and so I look back on Fable and my time and movies console and my time at Lionhead very fondly. Although I will admit, at the time, as I was walking out the door, I was not very fond of the experience at all because I had kind of been pushed to my limit. Uh, Jen remembers I, for the first time in my life, I actually had high blood pressure and um, I was having stomach problems. Yeah, I was having stomach problems. We were worried I was going to get an ulcer and I had this like almost permanent eye twitch because the pressure, I mean, I'd never been under so much pressure. Actually, well, it's interesting. I, v- making video games is high pressure, but the problem with working on Fable was I had all the responsibility and none of the control because Peter Molyneux always had the final say. And while I, to my dying breath, will say that Peter is a kind, warm, generous, nice guy, nice guy and a brilliant creative he, it, it's difficult working with him. He can be very, very, a very challenging co-worker uh, is a charitable way to put it. And it was just driving me nuts and I had to get out. But, you know, time has passed. And so, you know, obviously time heals all wounds. And now I just mostly remember the good times and none of the bad times. And, you know, as of the time of Lionhead's closure, there are still a lot of people that were there when I was working there. And my heart goes out to them. I hope they all do well. And uh, that's, I don't know what else to say. Actually, I can say one thing. You know, they were working on more than just, what's it called? Fable. I forget what the new Fable is called. The You know, it was going to be the asymmetrical one player is the dungeon master and all the other players are the heroes running around. I mean, that was the thing everybody heard about. But they were working on other projects as well. And the team that was working on one of the smaller projects, they are potentially going to continue working on that particular project as an independent game. So, you know, maybe, and in fact, actually, not even maybe, I would say definitely Phoenix-like, rising out of the ashes of Lionhead, I expect there is going to be a an explosion of little small independent development groups that stick together, that continue to make the great thing. Because the wonderful thing about Lionhead was it was such an incredible incubator for amazing out-of-the-box ideas. You know, these days, the video game industry has gotten to where, yeah, there's just crazy, fresh, original, innovative, just, you know, out-of-left-field ideas coming out all the time. And you're even seeing more and more of them from big, major studios. But back then, I mean, what is that? You know, it's, you know, not quite a decade ago, I guess six, seven years ago, you know, over the course of Lionhead's tenure, they were the company that was a big AAA developer that did really weird, offbeat stuff. And... You know, they attracted a certain type of developer who was, you know, you know, brilliant technically, but also brilliant artistically. And, I mean, there's just an incredible wealth of talent. I'm shocked that Microsoft made the decision they did. And I, I'm afraid I don't have any inside dirt on anything that happened. But, I, like I said, I can only hope, Phoenix-like, that other studios will rise out of the ashes and, you know, that... Those people will be able to continue to make fantastic video games. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Honey Pie. I don't really, other than, you know, it's always sad to see something die. But like you said, probably lots of new things will come out of it. There you go. All righty. Next up, Ray says, or asks rather, when Jen and I are playing at the table, not on camera, but just for fun, (laughs) where at the table do we sit? Same side, corner, across from each other? Depends on the game. 
We pretty much sit where you see us. <laughs> yeah, pretty much actually. We sit corner. Nine like degrees opposite each the, other. Yeah. Yeah, Jen always sits at the end of the table. The uh, head of the table or the table. Or the the I head suppose. of the table. You're about to say you like. I was. Is oh. there a reason? You yeah, because I I don't like table legs. I like <sighs> to be able to get my legs in and out from under a table uh, easily. So I like to be at the. So head you of the sit table. in the in the smack dab in the center of the head, and me, I sit fairly close to her, so I'm actually generally <laughs> straddling a table leg. <laughs> yeah, but you've got long legs, so. I, that's easier for you. I think my legs work pretty much the same as yours. I know, but they're I, longer. I, I, I don't think that really makes a difference in avoiding a table leg. If anything, I would say shorter legs is easier to avoid a table leg. But no, because I have, I have, for the distance of my thighs, you know, my upper legs. Apparently, Jen has given this more thought than I no, have. No, I just, I just did right now. That was okay. all my thought right there. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, yeah, that's how we always sit. We're very close to each other. It's weird to sit directly opposite each other. I guess we do that sometimes when we have a t- when we have a game set up on the other side of the table, sometimes. Yeah. But very rarely do we play that way. Um, you know, even in games where you're supposed to sit head to head opposite each other, like on a battle line or something like that, we'll still sit, you know, caddy corner. Well, it's easier too. Then one person isn't completely upside down to the board. This way, we're both usually diagonal. To yeah, the board. yeah, yeah. Actually, yes, that's true too. When we're playing by ourselves, normally. Uh, you know, we're, we're sitting at, I'm at six o'clock, she's at nine o'clock and we'll point the board game at, you know, seven and a half yeah. or, you know, so that it's, it's, it's like equally diagonal to both of us, which actually works out pretty well too. So that is how we sit. But I also like where I sit because I can look out at the sea. Yeah, that's, that's the best true spot too. for seeing the sea. Yes, yeah, that's right. Um, cause you, you could sit on the opposite side of the table and you get the best view really, but, um, then you get glare on the uh, on the table too whereas me i and so i don't sit over there i sit with my back to the ocean oh so sad you grew up on the on a boat so yeah you're not I, as water oriented i've as i've had plenty of years looking at water so i'm i'm i'll get by this is one of the 95 percent things that i care a lot more about than he does i think so yes next question from dylan let's see here Often, I find my ratings of my games change over time as I play them more. Do you think your reviews suffer because of your small play time to play the same game? I would say, yeah. I think there's no two ways about it. The fact that, as a general rule, by by the time I'm filming the game, I will have played it maybe three times more often than not two. It's... I... There's no denying it. There's literally no denying the fact that I cannot, in my final thoughts, give as deep and well-rounded an opinion as if I'd played it five times, or ten times, or twenty times. And would I like to do that? Yeah, that'd be phenomenal. But that is just fundamentally not practical. I, I, I have to admit, I do regret referring to the third video whenever I make you know the, the final thoughts. I shouldn't call them final thoughts. It's really misleading. I should call them initial thoughts, if anything, because nine times out of ten, they are only being spoken with the weight of limited exposure to the game. Now, that said, we both play so many games. I mean, I would say a lot more than any normal geek does. <laughs> I mean, we generally play four or five new games a week. Um, you know, We're extraordinary games. Yeah, we, we play a lot. And I would say because of that, we have gotten to... We are so we are exposed to so much. Um, we're pretty good at evaluating what we like. I mean, we're 
we're pretty good halfway through a game. I'm pretty good just from reading the rules, <laughs> knowing whether we're going to enjoy the game or not. In fact, that's why when publishers ask me, hey, would you cover my game? I say, well, just send me the rules because I'll probably be able to tell whether we're going to like the game just from reading that because I've read so many rules. I've played so many games. I can visualize. I can, and you know, plus I was a game designer for 20 years, so I can get a pretty good mental image of what the game experience is going to be. And even from just playing it once, even from just playing halfway through a game, I can get a pretty mental image, good mental image of how this game is going to escalate, where it's going to end up. So... Um, I, I wouldn't say that my opinion is completely useless, but it's not as good as it could be. I mean, there's no denying that. And that's one of the reasons that I always, always, always harp on the fact that please just completely ignore my final thoughts. Watch the run-through for yourself, and it's like you have played the game. You know, that's why I spend so much time devoted to talking about the strategies, talking about the thought process that one has to go through when playing the game. I don't just, you know, do a recitation of, you know, first I do A, then I do B, then I do C. I talk about, you know, the internal life that you go through when playing the game. So hopefully the run-through is of more value than our final thoughts ever could be. Well, and I would also like to say um, that's one of the really nice benefits of the co-host um, opportunities mm, because yeah. oftentimes people who are really passionate about the game will choose sure. something that you don't have, you know, a, a lot of in depth on. Yep. To give experienced final thoughts on. Yeah. Yep. In addition to my yearly update videos, the little update on what my collection, what's on the, what's on our shelves. Have you ever considered doing an update video on your top 100 and the changes that have happened? Um. Well, no, I'm, I guess I'd have to do a top 100 in the first place for that. <laughs> and that would be, I mean, considering the fact that it takes me about 40 minutes to do a top 10, a top 100 would be a, a not insignificant hurdle. Maybe that should be a stretch goal. <laughs> well, maybe it should be for yours. Oh, gosh. They, all they have to do is look at what we've got on our game shelf. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't really thought about doing that. I do keep very thorough, up-to-date notes. At any time, you can just go to games.rado.com and you'll see my top 100, which is constantly in flux. Although it's interesting, um, you know, my top 10 hasn't hardly changed at all in three years because I don't... Uh, you know, I know some people like Tom Bassel. I know his top ten is, or his top one hundred is not necessarily a reflection of what his favorite games are of all time. It's what his favorite games are right now. Um, whereas me, my list is my favorite. I value, I, I rank everything relative to you know how will I feel about this game in fifty years. I mean, you know, what is the long term appeal? Which is why my top one hundred doesn't change that much. Probably about fifteen games. 20, maybe, maybe 20, probably not even that, push their way into the top 100 every year. Maybe more like 10 push their way in, and therefore 10 more get pushed out. But heck, I will have already done run-throughs for all those anyway, so you can just check those out. And honey, yeah. get ready for this. Okay. Dylan also has a personal question. Uh, he notes, I've been very open about my atheism, and he admires my certainty, but he wonders, how can I be so certain there is no God when um, I have so limited knowledge, and humankind in general has so limited knowledge, even if I knew 2% of all there is to know, God could still exist in the 98. Um, How could you speak a little about your spiritual journey and why you believe there is no God? What are your thoughts on Jesus? I've always heard uh, (laughs) he was just a good... uh, I've always heard if he was just a good teacher, then why was he crucified? And after his crucifixion and the defeat that 
That was, why did the Christian faith spread like wildfire in the first century, if not for the resurrection? Holy cow! <laughs> wow. That's a... Uh, well, first of all... I feel like that should sort of be its own little section... The, Maybe we should do. We should have a Rado talks about religion. Um, yeah, well, that's 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 obviously a, a big, big thing. I mean, I'll I'll try to break it down. Break and it down. sorry for folks who would just like to hear more about board games, but hey, you ask me a question, I'm going to answer it. So Dylan asked the question. It's a fair question. I am going to answer as best I can. How can I be so certain? Well, first of all, yes, I'm I don't think we even know two percent of what's out there. I mean, if you think about all of the things that. You know, chemistry, physics, and biology, and quantum mechanics, quantum mecha- and, I mean, plumbing. Uh, I mean, there's just there is everything out there. All of the subjects there are in the world. I think plumbing's pretty well plumbed. Okay. No, I'm not saying that there's great advances to be made. I'm just saying what you personally know. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Or yeah. what I personally know. Mm-hmm. I don't think we probably know even a tenth of a percent of all of the knowledge that is out there in the world. Yeah. Which is kind of freaky because you know back. In the 1700s, 1800s, you could go get a classical education and you pretty much knew everything when you were done. That humanity knows. That humanity knew. And now (laughs) it is just impossible. I do not know much about microchip assembly. It is true. Even the the bits that make up a microchip Mm -hmm. and the ingredients that go into making up the bits that make up a... I mean, it's just... It's mind-boggling. Are you blowing your own mind there, honey pie? I'm saying there's just... We don't know squat or diddly. Diddly or squat. That's what I'm saying. Hardly even know a fraction of the diddly. So, how could I possibly be so certain? (laughs) Well, obviously, particularly in light of Jen's observation there, obviously I can't be 100% certain. It's it's literally impossible. What's the term? You can't you know disprove a negative, I think. Yeah. That's the that's the phrase in, you know, debate class. You, it's impossible. Just like it's 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 impossible to prove the existence of God. It's impossible to prove disprove, disprove the existence of God. Yeah, but actually, before but you Jen move keeps on, poking me in the yeah, thigh. I'm poking you in the thigh because I want to finish my thought. Oh wait, Jen had more on that. I have another okay. bit of thought on that, um, and that is because we won't come back to it. We'll go off into some other question, yes. and we won't ever forget. So we won't ever remember the the thing is about the whole mass of knowledge and things that are out there. Yes, I think it was about ten years ago. I read something. Like, there are so many new books being published every year mm-hmm. on the order of hundreds of thousands of new books. Mm-hmm. That there is just, even if you sat down and read, not, did nothing but read, and you could speed read every day, all day, 24 7, 365, you could not read every new book that's being published that year. Sure. So it's hopeless to try and keep up with things. So you just really have to be selective with your attention about what you want to spend your time and your life on. And I thought, wow, that was amazing because, you know, up until then you're trying to keep up with the news and you're trying to keep up with, um, you know, your friends, obviously very important friends and family, but just all of the little things that can take your attention and all of this other extraneous stuff that maybe is interesting, but is not really worth your attention. And then there's everything else that's out there. And it just, I remember at the time just thinking, okay, I'm just going to give my permit, myself permission to do the things that are important to me mm-hmm. and stop trying to do... Was that a great weight that was lifted? Yeah, it kind of was. And that's what I'm trying to say here. Because until you realize that there's no possible way for you to do everything, then you can stop trying to do everything and you can start doing the things that really matter to you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, That's. I just wanted to get to that point, which was right. all part of Sorry. the huge yep, amount good. of knowledge that's available to us. That's good. Okay. So... Back to religion. Yeah. Are you trying to duck the t- the question? Or? No, no I... you, you had that observation. You want? Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. When was that that you made that observation? Was that when we were in Texas or? I think it was in Texas. So yeah. a little over ten years ago. Okay. Cool. So, because I, I I cannot prove or disprove the existence of God. Um, you know, it's 
by definition, that's impossible. So how can I be certain? Well, to me, it has less to do with the metaphysical and more to do with human psychology. Um, I, I may not know about the mysteries of the universe, but I do have a pretty good idea from my 40 plus years, 46, mm. coming up on 47, I think. Yes. 47 years of life on this planet. I have a pretty good idea of how people work and the needs that people have. And to me, it the overwhelming evidence that I can point to has to do with what religion, organized religion serves as a purpose in people's life. How it gives people a sense of purpose. It gives people comfort. It comfort. gives people a sense of belonging. Um, it helps people deal with tough questions that they might not be able to deal with otherwise. It helps people answer questions for themselves. And I can and if you go back and look at throughout history, another principal thing it served for back in the early days when we were still fairly ignorant savages, mm. it just gave you basic tips on how to live your life. I mean, that's where you get all those weird um vestigal you know, commandments in the Old Testament, not the actual commandments, but, um, you know, directives in the Old Testament about not mixing different wool types and stuff like just weird little, Hey, here's some day-to-day -day tips about how you can wash your clothes and whatnot. It's like, what does that have to do with religion? It had nothing to do with religion. It had everything to do with public health and safety that, you know, in my opinion, the, you know, the people, the, the authorities, or you know, the independents who were responsible for the texts as much as anything else. They were actually just trying to put down a series of rules that people can live by. And what better way to help ensure that they will live by those rules than by saying, oh, by the way, if you don't, you'll get smote. <laughs> and so best stick to the straight and narrow. And I mean, to me, it just seems obvious that that is how organized religion came about. That plus the fact that there's, you know, what's the old saying about how, um, well, you know, what's the difference between an atheist and a Christian? Well, an atheist just doesn't believe in one more of the 99.9 .9 million gods that humanity has come up with over the centuries. You know, but, you know and, and so, I mean, did, what, did everybody else have it wrong and the Christians have it right? I mean, to me, it just doesn't add up. It's, oh, it, it's, I want to say something about that. Oh, wait, that. Jen has something to say. <laughs> I, got I thought you were actually going to duck this entire topic. Oh, uh, no, I love this. This is my, my I love this bit is about Is this your religion. jam? Okay. Like, no. Okay, so, oh, no, I can't remember which, no. which king it was in England. I think it was Henry VIII. Okay. Um, who basically took, um, oh, yeah, yeah, took yeah. over the religion for the state of England, Church of England. The church, created the Church of England yeah. because he was Couldn't not happy get a divorce. With, with the yeah. Catholicism, yeah. Well, yeah, he just wasn't getting his way with the Pope. Yeah. And so he just said, well, fine, then we will not do your religion anymore yeah. because, hey, guess what? I have a religion. I am an ordained, you know, from God king. Why not? Um, and so we're going to have the Church of England Oh, now. I know. Yesterday, Pope, you were infallible. Yep. Today, you're kind of fallible. Yep. And all of my people now have to also agree to this. And it's just like, what the heck? What, what the, the heck? heck? The heck? The hey. <laughs> um, you know, if you if somebody can just decide that, okay, now, as of, you know, this day, we, we no longer believe any of that. And we are now following this. Yeah. Uh, you know, what is there? What? Uh, yep. There's a serious disconnect there. Yeah. Well, now, and of course, so... The uh, the devil's advocate thing to that is going to be that, yes, while in fact, you know, 
humanity is imperfect, man is imperfect, God is perfect, and there's a through line of all those things. At the end of the day, whether any one person or religion was right or wrong, they all had the right idea. There is a greater power, there's greater than us, etc., etc. Okay, um, actually, no, I, I mean, I, I, Yeah, I'm sorry, go on. I don't have any truck with that. Uh-huh. Well, that's true, because you believe in the force, as it happens. We were talking about this this morning, actually, because I'm reading an interesting book by... Oh, 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 my phone's ringing. Oh, you know what, folks? Oh. We'll come right back to that shortly. Hey everybody, uh, welcome back. And first of all, I just want to say I, it's been a couple days since we got interrupted when we were filming a bit ago. And apologies for the quality of the sound. I know it wasn't the greatest. We were actually in our car film or recording the podcast, doing the Q&A. Because we were actually over on Malta and we were waiting for our older dog, Tula, who was in surgery for what at the time we thought was fairly minor, just taking care of a stomach blockage she had. We didn't think there was really anything particularly missed. We were a little worried because she had to go under anesthesia and she's a 13-year-old dog and all that, but she was in good spirits and she seemed healthy and everything seemed fine. And we got the call from the doctor and it wasn't even, hadn't even been going for a half an hour. And he said, you need to come over really quick because they opened her up they found that they found that she was riddled with cancer just really far advanced stage golf ball size I don't, I don't even remember what now and so we had to rush over and um, you know make the decision about what to do because the prognosis wasn't very good and uh you know, three, maybe six months with medication, but decreasing quality of life very rapidly. And so, and, and we hadn't, we hadn't expected any of this. You know, we had no idea and we just had to decide on the spot what to do. Because if they, you know, they, they, they could have taken care of the blockage, which turned out to be a ridiculously huge amount of cancer. They could have cut that out, but there was so much of it they couldn't cut out most of it. Some of it was on really sensitive organs and glands and whatnot, and it was just... So we basically decided to have her put down, and it was incredibly difficult. Um, And it's been a few days now, and it's still just really, really difficult, very hard. I mean, we just look around us, and the, the, the apartment just feels, you know, kind of empty now. Because, you know, she was, you know, the, the energetic one, always bouncing around, always goofing around. And, and you know, we take Dobby, our, our older dog, at 15, who's a tough little dog. She's, she's going to outlive us all for walks, but it's just, it's just everything seems wrong. And, you know, Tula's fur, she shed like crazy, and her fur is just everywhere. And we're like, we don't want to vacuum it up because then it's like she's gone for real. And so we're, you know, we're kind of getting through it, you know, day after day and uh, posted about it online and people have been really, really kind and we're really appreciative. One person actually made a donation to a Beagle Welfare outlet in their area and, you know, that was, that was the first thing that Jen said. Actually, 
you know, it's the first time that she said she could actually be happy about something. So that was really great. And, but, you know, we just can't stay in this funk forever. It's just, we have to, so I'm just try. we're, we're, we're going to try and record the rest of this podcast. Uh, Jen did not want to be part of this particular bit, but we're just going to try and finish it. And maybe there's going to be a change in the energy, but you know, we're basically at this point, you know, Jen's trying to get back on the torch and I'm going to try and film some run throughs because otherwise we just sit around and just be sad all the time. And it's just, it's just, it's just exhausting. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's that update. But, you know, I guess things must be getting better because if I tried to record this little bit, uh, you know, even a day ago, I, I don't think I could have made it through it. But, you know, time moves forward and we just have to keep focusing on the fact that we were really lucky to have her for eight years. We got her at five from a beagle rescue and, and you know, nobody else got her to have her for those eight years. So we were... <laughs> so, so... So, uh, yeah, anyway, <laughs> just, <laughs> so we'll be sorry to kind of bring everybody down a little bit. Um, but I just want to say a big thank you to everybody who sent all their well wishes our way. It means a lot. And, uh, I'm going to try and collect myself and, and Jen will get out of the shower and we'll try to get back to the Q and A. I think, uh, I think we'll not go back to the religion atheist one i should say by the way apologies to anybody obviously at the time when we were recording that we were our minds were we were trying to distract ourselves and maybe we went off on that topic a bit too much i certainly didn't mean to insult anybody or belittle anybody's beliefs that was not my intention if it came across that way i, I apologize i think when we come back we'll just kind of get back to the game related questions for a little while i think that's probably for the best so Hold on, everybody. We'll talk to you in a second. Okay, well, it's taken a while, and we are now finally getting back to continuing with the Q&A. Obviously, with the events that have happened over the last week, our time has been kind of scattered, but we are finally now sitting down, ready to continue. Jen is eating some cream cheese wrapped in thin salmon, it looks like. Mm-hmm. Is that about right, honey pie? Mm-hmm. Um, and we are ready to continue with Ben's question, um, which is, three questions in fact. What was your favorite game you played with a dice tower? What was your least favorite game you played with a dice tower? And what games did you play the following day with Jason? Now, I already mentioned I do plan on doing like a more thorough and complete recap of my week in Florida. But uh, since you're only asking about the games, just talk about that. It was a weekend in Florida, darling. Yes, it was. Wasn't it? Yeah. I was there, what, Friday? Yeah, the long weekend. You're right. Then I took off to Vegas. But anyway, for that whole trip, I'll talk about that later. But in terms of the games, let's see. Well, I know... 
the day on the Sunday, we did the live playthrough on Saturday. On Sunday, I went over and played a couple of games with Jason's group, uh, a nice group of guys. No dice tower folks among them. And we played Princes of Florence and Traders of Genoa. And they were both very cool. They were both ones that when I saw what they had available, I said I wanted to play because they're both games that really need three or more players to to flourish and that I'd wanted to try for quite a while because, you know, they're kind of modern classics. And, you know, they were both very, very good. The Traders, uh, or no, sorry, the Princes of Florence... It was interesting playing that. I I now finally start to see the thing that a lot of people complain about Puerto Rico. That when you play it with really knowledgeable players, and there are certain preconceived notions about what the obvious thing to do is, because you played the game so long and you kind of <laughs> understand the rhythms. I think Princess of Florence has that as well, because obviously I was a total noob. There was one other noob at the table, and everybody else really kind of knew their way around. And the folks who knew their way around, including Jason, you know, it was pretty obvious that they... Well, you know, it, it's not my problem if they build their entire strategy around me as the newbie doing the obvious thing, because there are certain obvious things you should do. But, uh... It, it, it really was kind of hard for me to get into it as much because I really felt like whenever I would make a decision and one of the others guys, oh my God, I can't believe you did that. Who does that? That's crazy. And you know, and I was left like, well, oh man, I'm sorry. I really didn't mean to mess up your game there. What was I supposed to do? And they say, well, you know, well, this would be the opposite. I'm like, oh yeah, of course that makes sense. <laughs> and I would have understood that if I played this game a hundred times and I understood you know, all the intricacies and whatnot. So that was an interesting experience, which I'd not really had before. Although, like I said, I've heard a lot of people have that experience with Puerto Rico. So the game was neat, but, you know, and it was an interesting experience. And then the other one, Traders of Genoa, was insane because this is a game where, you know, anything goes. It's a game all about players bargaining and negotiating and wheeling and dealing because on one player's turn, when they are the active trader, all the other players sitting around the table are actively you know, invested in what the one lead player does. Because if he moves over to the west, that might help one player. If he moves over to the east, that might help another player. And the whole game is supposed to be all about players trying to bribe each other. And I really love the idea of that. And honestly, I think I would have had a great time with the game, except, I won't name names, there were some people at the table who, once again, almost had kind of a preconceived notion of how the game should be played. And again, a few of us were complete and total new at the game we'd never played before, and we were playing in a way that not everybody liked, the way we were kind of negotiating and whatnot, and we were having fun, but it did lead to just some tricky moments where, look, I mean, you know, again, I've played the game dozens of times, and this is the way it generally goes, and it goes really smooth, and it's, you know, it's really how the game, you know, is intended to be played, and I'm like, yeah, but I wanted to make a deal like this. It's like, you know, and so... I'm glad I played both these games. I'm glad I, exper I experienced them both. But, um, you know, and, and I had a good time, and everybody at the table was very, very nice. But uh, neither of those were my most favorite experience of the day. And in fact, I think ultimately, uh, Traders of Genoa was probably my least, uh, and answer one of the other questions, my least favorite gaming experience there. Again, not because of the game, and not because of the people, but just because of that weird feeling of, wow, me playing wrong, or, you know, me, me playing in a way that's maybe not conducive with the spirit. I don't know. It was interesting. And, uh, but back to the main day, 
Well, usually when you make decisions in gaming, you just do the th first thing that occurs to you. Yes. Because you don't like to do the um, grinding. That is true. I am not a big fa fan so, of the grinding. Are you saying that those games didn't work so well because you didn't think things through and do the obvious newbie thing? Hmm. And you did whatever first occurred to you? Well, no, I, I thought I was trying to play smart, and... Well, of course. Yeah, well, I mean, Princess of Florence is a tricky one because it's an auction game. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's really no in-game directives or help to let you know, right, this round, these are the things that I could potentially get, and, oh, this is the auction that's going on. Gosh, I have no idea how much I should pay. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how to value this particular building that is up on auction. Um, and should I pay more? Should I not? Should I let it go for nothing? And at one point, I did do that. I let, um, you know, and everybody expected I was going to raise the guy who ended up getting it. It was a, it was a jester, yeah, which are the wild card things. And he ended up getting, I think it was a, it's been a while now, but I think it was a jester. And he ended up, everybody expected, since it was just me and him, that I was going to raise him a bit just to push the price up so he wouldn't get it so cheap. And I didn't. And it was like, I can't believe he got that so cheap. And that guy ended up winning the game. And I'm not saying it was, you know, that one particular move. And actually, it wasn't a gesture. It was, I can't remember what it was. It wasn't the gesture, now that I think about it. But it was something that only he and I had an interest in based on the strategies we were pursuing. And, um, you know, actually, Jason was one of the other people. And I just assumed Jason was going to raise him. But then Jason passed because he assumed I was going to raise him. But I had already decided, you know what? I don't really care about that thing. I'm going to go a different way. I don't really want to get into a bidding war with this guy. So I let it go, too. And then everybody was like, oh, my God, I can't believe you got that so cheap. And, you know, this was relatively early in the game, and I'm not saying the writing was on the wall, but that gave that particular player a huge boost. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of the example where if I understood the game better and I'd understood just how much I was handing him on a silver platter, because Jason worked under the assumption that I would understand that. And I'm not saying, I don't know that I necessarily did because I was still fairly new to the game and I didn't quite appreciate the impact that decision would make. So it was that kind of thing. And you know, it was still, it was a neat game. Um, but I think it's definitely, I think both those games are ones where pretty much everybody at the table needs to be a noob or everybody at the table needs to be an expert. And if for both of those games, we had an odd mix of noobs and experts. And neither of them, I think, benefited for that. For the main game day, man, I played a bunch of games. And it's interesting, I, you know, uh, Tom had sent me an email before I came. Hey, but which games are you interested in playing? And I went looked through his collection, and I'm, I chose most all those games, along with like two dozen other games I would have happily played. Actually, I gave him like a list of two dozen, and he chose the ones we actually played. And the ones I was choosing were, again, ones I would never get to play with Jen. And so there was kind of a focus on um, you know three-player minimum games, games that have hidden traders and stuff like that, because I've never experienced it. I've always wanted to try those. And I think what's interesting is I discovered, yeah, I don't like those. Um, it's really not... I always thought it would be a blast to be the sneaky person and, um, That's you know... That's I always get to be the sneaky yeah, person. Yeah, yeah, Jen. Whenever we play, Jen always ends up being the person who's sneaky and, you know, doing hidden movement and whatnot. So I, I, I thought it'd be fun to do that in, what is it, Murder Inception in Hong Kong or uh, Resistance or whatever. But I found... It was interesting. When we were getting the, the roles out, I was actually dreading having to be the betrayer. I just didn't want that pressure. 
And um, you know, Tom later on said, well, yeah, I just don't think Rado really enjoyed lying to people. And it wasn't that so much. It was just, I didn't like the extra pressure of being, again, the only person at the table, of everybody who was playing, who had never played any games like this ever. And so I felt really at a huge disadvantage, because they were all playing on meta levels. They'd all play these games with each other. You know, they, they knew, and I was just kind of thrown into the deep end of the pool with a bunch of sharks who knew their way around, knew all the bluffs and counter bluffs and triple bluffs and quadruple bluffs. And I'm just... Ah, I can't even ask a question because I can't give away if I'm the traitor or not. It was just... They were cool, and I, I, I liked the idea of them. And again, I can't help but think I probably would have done better if everybody around the table, like me, was a total and complete novice, which, as it turned out, was not necessarily the case. Actually, that's not true. There was one other guy who was fairly new at them as well, who stayed for a couple of the games. So really, of the games, all the games I played, I think the ones I enjoyed the most were Dungeon Fighter and Nitwit. Um, Nitwit, because nobody had played it, so I was as new to it as everybody else. So I very much enjoyed it because of that, plus it was just a neat little party game. And Dungeon Fighter, which I think Jen and I would enjoy too. I don't know if it's something we'd want to play a lot, but it's a dexterity game where we're going through a dungeon, and it's a cooperative game, and the way we fight monsters is basically quarters. Remember the college game of yep. you know trying to you you bounce a quarter off the table and you try and land it in a shotgun glass. You can't just like land it you know it has to bounce off the table and you yep. know bounce into the shotgun glass. Yep. That's that's quarters, right? That's that what quarters is. Well, honestly, I've, I don't know, but I think I've seen something similar to that. Yes, I believe that's how you play quarters. And this is like an entire game based on that. And there's all mm-hmm. kinds of really cool little neat tricks and upgrades. Um, you know, tr- you know, having to like bounce over walls when there's a flaming wall in your way or having to throw them over your shoulder if you're firing blind to get extra points. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was actually really cool. I really enjoyed that. We didn't have mm-hmm. time to finish it, but I think I would have. But uh, it was I didn't really want to push it because I there were definitely guys at the table who were like Really? We're playing this? Uh, so, I mean, I was glad I got to experience it. Was a, it was a fun time overall, and I'll talk about the rest of the experience uh, later. Honey? What? No. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were about to say something. Okay. Nope. So, ne- that was from Ben. Next question. Marie asks... Right. Uh, well, Marie... It, like Jen and I are kind of live and let live players. We do, they don't tend to go for aggressive gameplay. They have recently picked up Dominion... Intrigue, and that was their first experience with Intrigue, and it turns out the it didn't go over too well because it's interesting. I mean, all the Dominion expansions have different flavors; they all do different things. Intrigue is widely regarded as the one that has the most interaction, the most ways to oh, I'll mess up your deck or I'll make you trip and all that stuff. And so the question is, which Dominion would we think is the friendliest, most suitable for Care Bear players like me and Jen, like Marie and her partner? And Marie, I am sorry, this is a hard question for me now. I mean, it's impossible for Jen to answer. I'm just standing here. Jen's just staring at me blankly. <laughs> um, but it's hard for me to answer, too, because here's the way Jen and I play Dominion. I have all of Dominion, with the exception of the Empires, the expansion is just about to come out, in two old Thunderstone boxes, actually, because the, Thunder, the original Thunderstone boxes had like little dividers built in, so you could keep all the cards nice and neat. I have every unique card in its own little plastic sleeve, and every time we ever play Dominion, what I do is I just open these boxes and start pulling random cards out of random expansions. At this point, I don't really have a strong feeling about what all the different expansions do, because we never say, hey, today we're going to play Dark Ages, or today we're going to play Guilds, or today we're going to play Prosperity. We just grab a whole bunch of stuff hither and yon, and uh, that's the way we like it. That's the way we've always played. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's, That's the way, the way. uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. We do, in fact, like it. So I'm really uh, not well-equipped to answer this question. Although, interestingly, 
Next month, well, as soon as Dominion Empires comes out, Dominion Empires made it to the top of the Rado Runs Through request list, which means I was supposed to do a run through of it. And I've always promised when I do a run through of Dominion, I will actually do my homework um, and articulate all of the expansions and, and talk about what we like about the stuff that's in each and every one of them, which is going to take me a long time. I'll have to break them all back apart because they're all just kind of jumbled together and figure out what's in each one. And I'm going to do that. But not until Empires comes out, because I, I don't want to do everything but Empires and then do Empires later. So I can't answer that right now. You'll get an answer next month. But in the meantime, i got to say my gut is probably Dominion. Just the base game. Uh, I, do, I mean, if anybody ever asked me, hey, uh, we haven't tried this Dominion game, which one should we get? I would say get Dominion. Dominion, no intrigue, no alchemy, no seaside, none of those things. Just straight Dominion is probably the best way to start the game. It's designed to be the introduction to the game. It has a little bit of take that, but a very small bit that you can take out easily, and it really kind of encapsulates all the basics. You really want to know that and love it before you start then introducing new and different things that shake up the formula because you can't really appre- you have to appreciate the basic formula before you introduce new far out stuff so that would kind of be my gut feeling in all honesty next up ray all right i remember this has a very very similar question about among the stars which is this the space station building game okay. um, you know where we draft for cards and you know we, we you, you're you're laying the, the the perfect square cards and yeah I have to put them in Oh, we've played it a bunch of times. You, you, as soon as I show it to you, you'd recognize okay. it. But anyway, four questions about Among the Stars. Did you end up keeping all the expansions? Uh, if so, do you add it all together? And what uh, what features do you leave out? Do you still play Revival expansion? Just add all, uh, or just add all the cards to your core set? Basically, man, what do you still have? And what do you play for Among the Stars? You know what? My answer here is exactly the same thing. I've got all of the cards just in their individual little packages, and whenever we play the game, which admittedly is not that often, because as I've talked about many times, we don't get to replay games we really love, but every time I would play it, every time we would play it, I just grab a bunch of random stuff just from... So from the base game, from the first expansion, from um, you know, from ambassadors, from you know, just from everything. I think at this point, the only thing we would leave out was the stuff from the most recent expansion, which was pretty aggressive stuff about being able to park ships, spaceships in your opponent's space station, and really kind of mess with their ability to expand. I think those, if I act, if I randomly pulled a card that gave you that power. I'd throw it back in the box. But otherwise, we just take everything and just mix it all together. That's the way I love it. That means every time we play, no matter what, it's going to be a radically different game. And that's what we love about both those games. Alrighty, David Honeypie yes. um, noticed that I mentioned I was a video game developer. He wants to know what my responsibilities were as a video game developer. Uh, Spending a and, lot of time away from me. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, Jen's... Uh, res- I was a video game widow. Yes, for 20-some years. Yeah. I was a lead designer. Well, I started out... Well, oh, <laughs> it's a long story. But I, I very quickly rose from junior designer on Bubsy 3D, where my responsibilities were... I was brought in. There was a lead designer. He was responsible for most everything in the game. I did the boss fight design, and I also worked on the special two-player mode we had, which I thought was actually really cool based on the limitations we had to make it with. And then I also did some basic level design and whatnot, but I was a junior designer. But Siphon Filter, I got promoted to lead designer because basically when we got that project, I was the only person around who could do it. Yep. And as a lead designer, as I've, I've often explained to people, I've 
the closest thing parallel you could draw to would be the director of a movie. Generally speaking, the director of a movie does not run the camera. You know, they've got the cinematographers for that. The director of the movie, generally speaking, does not write the script. You've got script writers for that. They um, do not um, handle all the finances. You've got a producer for that. Um, but the director of the movie is still the single person who brings everything together, who makes sure that everybody is moving in lockstep towards the same vision. And that was ultimately my main responsibility. Now, that's not to say I didn't do a lot of level design in originally in 3D Studio R4, before, well before Max. Uh, on SideFilter, I did a lot of level, um, because we, and, and a lot of population. I did a lot of scripting in various scripting languages over the years. But I eventually moved on from being a lead designer, where I was still kind of hands-on doing simple scripting stuff. Because I, my... Well, I've been programming since I was 12. I mean, I learned how to program in assembly. I taught myself on my old TI-994A. So I, I, I can code if I need to, but I've never done it professionally. I, I know enough to know what I need to know and don't know. I know enough to know that I'm dangerous. I know enough to know how to talk to a programmer and understand what the issues they face and how I, as a designer, as a system, the person responsible for how the game works, could change my design to fit the needs of what the programmers needed. Um, you know, I'm not an animator, but I do understand the basics of how animation works, etc., etc. So that was my job. As I moved up uh, to, from lead designer to creative director, uh, you know, and the teams got bigger, I got more and more removed from the day-to-day -day actual pushing pixels and spent more and more time just man-managing. Um, you know, taking care of running meetings and doing personnel stuff, you know, all sorts of things. But really, at its heart, my job had always been being a cheerleader, being the guy, if anybody ever has any question about, right, how should X, Y, or Z work or look like, or what should it sound like? I was the person that was, the buck stops here. They came to me, I, that I create that, I provide that creative direction. You so, had the vision. Uh, yeah, I was the vision holder, and I had to have the entire game in my mind at all time, ready to, you know... Answer any question. Answer any question. And the, tr the, the number one thing I learned in that is, you know, modern video games are big, complex, interwoven systems, and there's no way I could possibly have an answer to everything. So what I really learned to do is think fast on my feet. And when somebody came up with a question for some issue, some conflict between two systems that had never occurred to me... I have to think fast on my feet and be able to come up with smart, effective solutions to those problems as quickly as possible. Pretty much right there while I'm talking to them. Be very decisive and just go, go with my gut and speak with authority. Because one thing I learned fairly early, if you ever quibble, you're saying, ooh, that's a really good point. I never thought about that. Let me get back to you tomorrow. You instantly lose the respect of the team. The team starts deciding, well, if he doesn't know what he's doing, I guess I'll just decide for myself. And so that was a big, big part of my job as well. Just thinking on my feet and keeping everybody moving in the same direction and keeping everybody upbeat. Video game development is hard. It's backbreaking. It's murderous. And I had to be the guy who would get up in front of the entire team every week and say, hey, everybody's going great. Look at what we've done. Look at what we're comfortable. Here's what we're trying to go for. So that was my job, and it served me well doing Rado Runs Through because my, I was a communicator. I had to explain to people how systems work that I had dreamed up, and that's what I do now when I explain how board games work. Second question from David. 
Um, there's a question about locales for the run-throughs. Early run-throughs were in a kitchen. <laughs> then you had some in front of a fireplace and on some sort of balcony before we ended up where we are. Where, were these in Malta? I'll let Jen answer that question. A kitchen. Was that back in England? Did yeah. you start in England? Yep, yep, yep. That would have been in our kitchen in England. Yep. Um, little Victorian house built in the 1900s. Mm -hmm. Tiny, tiny rooms. Tiny, tiny table. Yep, little house. But lovely. We love that house. Yep. Um, then we moved to Emdina, and we rented this amazing house of character. Yes. A house of character, um, which is an, a really old house. I think it was from the 1200s, actually. Yep, something like that. Um, in the great walled city of Emdina. Not the silent Medina, city. Emdina. Yeah, M-D-I-N-A, if anybody yep. wants to go look it up. Yep. Um, which is absolutely astounding and amazing. Once-in-a-lifetime thing for us to be able to do. So pleased we could. Um, <clears throat> however, really not a silent city as it comes to be. Yeah, that's what it's always referred to as a silent city. But the absolute opposite of that. Yeah, we lived between two churches that had bells that went um, every hour, every half hour. Sometimes on a feast day, it would go every 15 minutes. So yeah. we had bells. And not just during the day. They went all night yeah, as well. Yeah, we it did was eventually insane. sort of stop hearing them but it yeah. was it was a challenge there for a while but anyway really amazing to live in such an old place yeah. um so that would have been any anytime you see a game filmed on a clear glass a see-through glass table yes yep and you probably see the beagles looking up <laughs> through the clear glass i think that going, does happen every once in a while what yeah. is yep. going on up there yep. who um, is he talking to yeah and why is there no food yep. we want some food this is the food place yeah um, and then, uh, so after we moved out of Emdina, we moved to Gozo, and that's where we are now. And you've seen two tables here. One is the one that came with our flat, and it's a kind of a whitish glass, kind of frosted glass table. Um, and then the we other one... We had the one, Geek and Sun table. Yeah, we were, we were really lucky to have a Geek and Sun for, what, six months? Something Eight like months, that. something like that, Nine yeah. Nine months almost, I think. Yep, so if you see a table that's either wood or has green felt... That would be an awesome yeah. Geek and Sun table. Yeah, that was an excellent table. Do kind of miss it. For Actually, it's good to bring it up because actually I get asked this all the time. Mm. I, I think I have to add this literally to the FAQ, <laughs> my, FA, my frequently asked questions, because uh, people keep noticing, hey, where'd the Geek and Sun table go? Um, the Geek and Sun table was always a loner. Yep. And basically what happened is there's a mm. nice guy who's moving here. He He's... They're British, um, although I believe he's Polish, but you know they grew up in Britain. Uh, they're moving here in a few months, and they're moving from Hong Kong. But they'd come over previously. They're checking out the place, and we met them. And he's a hardcore war gamer, and he was looking at getting his own gamer table built back in Hong Kong, and he was going to move it out here. But then, because um, what the original plan was, Geek and Son, we were going to have a free month. We were going to make the video, and eventually Geek and Son was going to come collect the table, and they were going to use it as a display model at conventions or in you know showrooms and whatnot. That was the ultimate future of that table. But the guy, he saw it. He really loved it. He contacted Geek & Son. They worked out a deal. And now that table will live on in Malta, just a few short miles away from our place. Yep. yep. And we game with them, so we'll see it sometimes. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, we'll get to visit it. We'll, we'll, we'll share visitation rights, I guess. <laughs> So, um, yeah, that was David. Where, where, where have you been oh, filming? Oh, and also you should say, because people will be in an uproar that you did such wonderful work for Geek & Son with showing yeah. the table, that Geek & Son has very generously said that whenever we settle down, 
they'll build us a table to fit whatever room yes we happen to be gaming in yeah they would they you know they're they're great guys yeah. and they're they're ready to do that because i know a lot of people are like geekins on they're evil rotto did so much for them they should make rotto a table they shouldn't you know i was like no they're wonderful guys yeah. they're very kind very generous jen and i liked them a lot they mm -hmm. were wonderful to work with when we were designing yep. the table with them it it's it's not them it's us the thing is we are renting this flat and we know someday we're going to move and right now Everything in this flat stays with the flat, yep. except for Jen's glasswork, my games, and our clothes. Well, and That's we, about it. We have a few knickknacks here and there. Yeah, and a few knickknacks. We are not particularly interested in owning a big, gigantic table that we might eventually someday move back to that house in England. That will never fit in that little The house table would house. not fit in. Yep. So um, that's, why, that's why we've gone back to the glass table recently for people who are curious about that. Alrighty, um, Theo asks if my opinion of a game has ever changed substantially while filming a run-through of it. I don't think so. No, it changes when we play it. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, like if I'm in the middle of a, of a play, I mean, there's definitely, it's, there's no choice about it. I talked about this earlier. I will reiterate now. The simple fact of the matter is, as a general rule, for most of the run-throughs you see me do, Jen and I have only played it a couple of times, usually at most. Sometimes, Rare says we'll have played it three or four or five times, usually if it's a quicker game. Sometimes, we'll have only played it once. Heck, there's even been a few times when I've never played it at all. And I generally try to be forthcoming about it. And if I don't say anything, it usually means Jen and I have played it twice, and the run-through you're seeing me film is the third time I've played it. Mm. And now, yeah, under those circumstances... I am still discovering stuff about the game at the time that I am actually making the run-through. Me personally, I think that actually kind of adds a certain... Freshness. Freshness. You know, a, a bit of life. You know, I mean, you know it, it's one of the reasons you, people are always surprised by how excited and upbeat. You know, it's because I'm still discovering the game. I'm still learning it. Now, I wouldn't say that that has led me to say, well, you know, I went into this thing thinking we liked it, but then, oh my gosh, dur during this run-through that I filmed, I realized this huge problem, and it's terrible. Oh, I, you know. Or, and I, I, that's never really happened, and it's never really gone the other way where, oh boy, we really hate this game. I don't even want to do run through. Okay, I'll do it. And then, ooh, it all came to life in front of me when I was. Neither of those things have happened. But it's definitely true that as I am actually running through that game, I am still drawing my final conclusion about it. Um, so that kind of answers Theo's question, I hope, a little bit. Okay, next question from Scott. Uh, oh, how does it work with Paulo adding the annotations? Does he read the rules after I do um, or before the run-through is taped? How long does it take to get a run-through finalized from first rules, read to end result? <laughs> you know, normal games I'm talking about here. Um, so that is an excellent question. And quite frankly, when I got this message, Scott, I had to realize I have no idea what Paulo does. I literally <laughs> do not know. He is a black box up in Portugal. I just plug the data in. Basically, here's, here's the way it works. I do a run-through. I upload it to YouTube. I send the links to Paulo. So he's the only one who knows it's there. And then he, sometimes he turns it around the same day. Sometimes it takes him a couple of days. But eventually he writes back saying, Game X is done. And then, okay, cool. Now I can go ahead and make it live. That's the beginning and end. Occasionally, Paulo will ask me, Hey, you mentioned this. It, they run through, but then you did this other thing. Were you being stupid? 
or you know, <laughs> or whatever. He does. He never says that. But you know, did you, did you get it wrong? Which is the right thing? Occasionally, he'll ask me questions, but mo- very rarely. He's pretty much self-contained. And so when I saw this question from Scott, I actually forwarded it to Paulo, and he actually wrote back. So I'm not going to try and do a Portuguese accent right now, but Paulo says, Hey, smiley face, this is my process. I start watching the video and listen to Richard's explanation of how the game plays. When any of these things happen, one, Richard says something I find odd, <laughs> two, Different, um, different than it is usual in these types of situations or in other games. So basically, if he sees me do something that, well, that's in another game, it would have gone like this. Why is that different? Or three, he does something different than what he explained before. So those are three things. Uh, I, I say something that sounds wrong. I do something that's different than the usual thing you would expect. Or I, I literally say one thing and do another which I've been known to do. Anyway, continuing, I pick up the rules and try to find that specific thing in the rules. So I usually don't read all the rules to all the games. There are games that I read the rules, but for the most part, I don't. I think I've gotten enough experience with all the games I've played, rules I've read, and videos I've watched, that when something comes up that's out of the ordinary or just doesn't feel right, that immediately captures my attention, and I go and check if it's right. That's it. Or I I think that's it. Right, and there you go. So, thanks, Paulo. Hopefully Paulo's that awesome. yes, and Paulo is awesome. I cannot reiterate that enough. Let's see here. Did Scott have any more questions? Right. Oh, also, um, yes, I know some other video reviewers do post editing. But very few times will you need to. Is that correct? Yes, that's true. I mean, I, I hate editing my videos. I just hate it. I mean, anybody who makes these videos will confirm it's the absolute worst part of doing a YouTube video show about board games is editing videos together. It's just drudgery. It takes forever. Um, I do it all with the built-in YouTube editor, youtube.com slash editor, which is just horrible and so primitive. It does so little that I try to avoid it, uh, which is why I started doing annotations, and now Paolo has taken them over. It is kind of a pain that people who are watching like on a smart TV or on their tablet can't see the annotations. That's why Paolo now also puts the notes in the show notes themselves, because then everybody can see those. I just find that works so much better. If I actually had to edit every video, I, I I'd, I'd stop doing the show. Yeah. Right. Okay. And Honey Pie, last question. Another one from Ben. Ben is back. Uh, I'm listening to your January podcast, and you said you lived in Bend, Oregon. I live there. Oh. When did you live here? How long? Why did you leave? What are your likes and dicks likes? Curious on Jen's thoughts, too. Ooh. So I will let Jen take that one. Um, well, let's see. We lived there from 96 to about 2002, I think. Okay. Sounds about right. I think we were there for six or seven years. And um, what was our likes and dislikes? I'm sorry. There was a big, long question. Uh, let's see. When did we live there? Got it. How long? Nailed it. <laughs> Why did you leave? Oh, we left because my husband. <laughs> I'll let him answer that one. Next question. <laughs> what were your likes and dislikes? Ooh, I really, really, really liked Bend. In fact, I think I could have stayed in Bend for the rest of my life and been quite happy. I had a business there um, doing graphic design, and I had a wonderful um, guy that I worked with, and we just got along great, and everything was um, swimming. 
um, I like I like the climate actually. Uh, it was cold enough. It was warm enough. It was dry enough. It wasn't, um, you know, too wet. It was just really good. I thought it was beautiful there. Um, we had a lovely little house on Southeast Desert Woods Drive. Desert Woods Drive. That's yep. right. Um, which was not too far from one of the canals, so I could just walk down the street and then get on the canals, and I used to run a lot. Um, so I liked that. Um, actually, I bought a greenhouse, about mm. a 30-foot greenhouse, um, from this very interesting company, and I had a little um, business selling scented geraniums as well as doing graphic design work. We had a nice big garden that we had... Uh, landscaped and had a waterfall and fruit trees and all sorts of wonderful things. So basically there was enough room for everything that I wanted to do there. We had a nice little house. Um, things were going really well with my business. Things were going really well with where Duck was working. And um, we had a lovely little dog there named Scuttle. She was awesome. Uh, she'd go running with me, um, little Lhasa Opso. And um, I just felt that there was a really good community as well because I was networked in with uh, the network of entrepreneurial women. And that was a gr really good group of, of people. Um, so, yeah, I just think it kind of had a, a bit of everything. And, of course, Bend is beautiful. Bend, Oregon is beautiful. Beautiful high desert. Yeah. Um, I would add the stuff I loved. I loved Goody's ice cream. Oh, yes. And, and I love Pilot Butte burgers. Yeah. Uh, and we, we walked the Pilot Butte all the time. Yep. Uh, but, oh, man, Goody's ice cream. Yeah, that, that was really best, good. Some of the best ice cream in the world. Loved just the views. Yep. Uh, the mountain views were oh, just amazing. I remember when we went down there for the interview trip, um, my plane landed. You had gone ahead somehow, I mm -hmm. think. Um, but my plane landed and it was at sunset. And you, the sun did that amazing thing with all of the really bright fuchsias and purples and oranges and everything over the mountains. And I just thought, oh, yeah, I, definitely, I could live here. Yep. <laughs> yep. This looks good. Yep. So, yeah, we had a really positive... Uh, Impression from the what did you show. not like about Bend? It likes and oh, dislikes. Right, right. Um, dislikes. Well, I had quite a lot of black widows that like to live in my <laughs> greenhouse, <gasps> and they freaked me out for a long time. But unfortunately, I will tell you, I did squish them because you know you just can't be sticking your hands in pots and having black widows um, living there with you. So black widows do squish just as easily as every other spider out there. I will let you know that. Um, and I never did get bit. But they did like living in the greenhouse. <clears throat> so I didn't like that. Um, what else didn't I like? I know I did not like the smell of junipers. Oh, I didn't mind the scent of junipers. At oh, all. I mean, no, no, it was like urine. When, you know, it, it, I forget what time of the year it was. I think it was spring because there were a lot of rain, so everything was wet. Yeah, and we probably had the juniper pollen all over everything. Yeah, and, and I just remember you know, driving <laughs> through town. And I traveled a lot at the time. You know, I'd have to fly down to the Bay Area because I was working on siphon filter. And when I'd come back, it's like, oh, that smell. It's just everywhere. Mm. But, Apparently, I didn't much mind it. All right. Oh, also, because it's, such, it's dry, high desert... My elbows were like crazy, weird, alien, scaly reptile skin. They were just gross, like practically cracking and not bleeding. But, you know, I mean, they, it, it, that was just, that was, that was unpleasant. Mm. But that's really about it. I mean, there's really not that much to complain. Bend is absolutely delightful. And we both miss it quite a bit. We Every once in a while we talk about, man, we should move back to Bend. But Jen always says you can never go back. You can never go back. It's never going to be the same. Yeah. It's always going to be something different, probably disappointing because you built it up in your memory about how wonderful it was. Yep. But yeah, we 
we did really enjoy our time in Bend. Yeah. As for why we left, basically, we went down there. We left Seattle to move to Bend for my first job as a junior designer on Bubsy 3D. And then I got the promotion to lead designer on Siphon Filter. I did Siphon Filter, and I did Siphon Filter 2. And we were starting to work on Siphon Filter 3. And Siphon Filter 3 was not going to be called Siphon Filter. It was going to be called Siphon Filter Online, PSO. It was going to be a launch title for the PlayStation 2. And at that time, everybody, we were all hardcore into um, Diablo and Counter-Strike. We were all playing tons of online gaming. And I, what I wanted to do, I mentioned those two tiles, because I wanted to take the Siphon Filter franchise and create a mix of Counter-Strike and Diablo. I wanted to have what was... Oh, we were all playing tons of EverQuest at the time as well. I wanted to make a massively multiplayer online shooter. And I was really super stoked about that. We had a really clever design. Now, bear in mind, this has absolutely nothing to do with... um, Oh, Siphon Filter Omega Strain, which did actually have an online component, but that was long after I left. So, but I was really super stoked for this. And, you know, we were, we were doing early tests. Uh, we, you know, I, I did all the motion capture. Actually, if you ever play <laughs> yeah. Siphon Filter the Omega Strain, if you watch Gabe run around, that's me. That's all my motion capture data that Shane and I captured with our own little, because we built our own mocap studio. Well, it wasn't exactly a studio. It was basically some... Well, it was, it was, it was very uh, rough and ready. But what happened is, I was really stoked about this, very, very excited. But then Sony, who by that point had owned us, so we were Sony Ben Studio. We weren't Eidetic Studios anymore. But Sony decided, hey, you know what? There's still a lot of PlayStation 1s out there. We really need another siphon filter on PlayStation 1. We need to shelve uh, siphon filter online and do a siphon filter 3. And the instant that got handed down, I just lost all passion. Because by that point, I had been making Siphon Filter for five years. And I kind of felt that I was Siphon Filtered out. I had pretty much done everything that I... I'm not going to say everything I could do, but everything I wanted to do with the game on the original PlayStation. But suddenly we had to do this, and it was going to take a year. And I'm like, oh, I just, I just... I just, I, I, I just lost all my passion. Or more to the point, I was so insanely passionate for Siphon Filter Online, which, like I said, would have been the first. It would have been the first shooter MMO. It was going to be absolutely amazing. It was going to do things that, to this day, still no game has ever done. And when word got down, I mean, I just started looking around. And Jen was a very understanding about it as well and when I got the job offer to be a creative director which was a really big step up I wasn't just going to be the lead designer on one project I was going to be the creative director of the company and overseeing multiple projects that was very very exciting for me and that's where I ultimately went and worked on Pitfall and The Sims and Shark Tale and we had a great time and and we were really excited about you know something new and something different I mean and also, we had been thinking we wanted to try something new and different. We'd, all, we'd lived in the Northwest our whole lives. Well, our whole adult lives. You, your entire life. I grew up in California. Well, I was born in Missouri. Yes, so but... I've spent a few months outside of the Northwest. But then you spent the rest of the time. Yeah. But yeah, we, we had always talked about wanting to be able to live overseas. And you know, when we were thinking about leaving Ben because of my change, in, and there was nothing wrong with the company. And in fact, to this day, probably 90% of the original team that made Siphon Filter is still there in Ben because it's such a wonderful place to live. And they're still working for Sony. 
Uh, you know, make it, they made a lot of PSP games. They're, you know, they're doing a lot of cool stuff. So they're all very happy. I'm sure I could have been there and happily, lived happily ever after as well and just kept on working on that stuff. But I needed to do something new as I just didn't have the passion. Um, but Jen and I, we wanted to live overseas. But we, that was a big, big jump for us. That was what? We were in our late 20s, early 30s, I guess, probably at that point when we were, t- when we were making this move. Yeah. And we figured, well, okay, maybe it's a bit too much of a jump to move overseas right now. But you know what? Let's move to Texas. That's practically like moving to another country. <laughs> yes. And it was. I mean, Texas is really kind of adjacent to the United States of America. It's not necessarily part of the United <laughs> States of America. But then we didn't live in Texas. We lived in Austin, yep, which is, which its is basically little... its own thing surrounded by Texas. <laughs> yep. So, you know, we had a great time in Austin as well. But that's kind of the, that's our bend story, I suppose. Unless you can think of anything to add. Well, and also um, when we looked into moving to uh, England or wherever back at that time, they still had the crazy quarantine where you had to quarantine your dogs for six months. That's right. That was another reason. Yeah, we did not want to have to put Scuttle in a cage in some kind of center for six months. That was untenable to us. So that was the other reason that at that point in our lives, it wasn't viable to move overseas. Yep. Uh, Eventually... Three years or four years later, after we'd been in Texas for a few years, we looked again and found out, oh, now they have new do-the-quarantine-at-home stuff. And so we were able to finally make the move, and then we lived in England for eight years, and now we've been here in Malta for three. We're heading on our fourth year now, I think. Yep. So that is it. Honey Pie, you gave up a lot to leave Bend. I did. Um, I mean, do you want to talk about that at all? Oh, well, I mean... mean, Because you had a successful business... And you basically sold it to your employee. Yeah, well, we kept it going while I was in Austin because it was not too bad with the time zone difference. Oh, that's right. Yes, yeah, yeah. So you did keep it. So that was the point. That you were going to satellite in. You could work from wherever. Yep. And you did do that. And you kept on supporting all your clients. So really, nothing much changed. Other than you, didn't, you had less face-to-face time with your clients. Yeah. And well, David and I, had to take over all the face... The, yep. Yeah. And I got a couple new ones in, in Austin as well. But Yeah. Um, and then also I um, was introduced to fused glass in Austin. Yep. And the that lady, changed your life. Yeah, the lady who um, showed me how to do it, she goes, you know, I used to be a graphic designer. And you know what you could do is you could get up in the morning and you could go out and play with glass. And then while the kiln is heating up and, and melting all the glass together and annealing and stuff, you could actually just come back in and you could do your graphic design then. And you'd be like working double smart. And I'm like, oh, I, I'm so, I love that. I'm so efficient. Yes. Uh, bef- long before we ever knew about modern designer board games that so wonderfully scratched Jen's efficiency itch. Mm. Even back then, it was all about how can I maximize my time? Yep. I can do two jobs at the same time. Yeah, because the kiln's going to heat up and cool down anyway. I might as well, you know, let it do that and, and then come inside. And since it was a two-hour time zone difference anyway, it actually worked out really well. Yep. Yeah, but then when we eventually moved to England, you could not continue to support yeah. line design graphics, and then that's when you sold it because the time zone difference and all that. Yep. Yeah, that's what it was. Yep. And David has always just been awesome, and he deserves yeah. the success of yep. that. Yep. So. Well, cool. Thank you for the question, Ben. Thanks for the questions, everybody. And that's it for the Q&A for oh, this month. Oh, you, wait. No, you, Jen has something more. You were just saying that I gave up an awful lot. And that is true. But, you know, every road that you go down, there's always going to be detours and different paths that you can take and stuff. So... While I look back on that time and, and know that I would have been happy in Bend, and we would have been happy in Bend, um, I don't regret leaving that and trying to do things because we have we've experienced so much and done really cool stuff. And yeah. heck, we live in we live in Malta now, so yeah. that would never have happened. Yep. So it's all good. It's all good. Yeah, if I just done my time, I mean, it could be like most of the guys at Idetic. They're still there. They're very happy. You know, yeah. they've sailed down permanent routes. They've got kids. They yeah. and all there's that nothing stuff. wrong with either way. I mean, yeah. So.
That's good. Yeah. I'm a wandering guy. Made a lot of stops all over the world. Um, and that was Ben's question. Okay, folks, that was it for the Q&A. And we'll be back in just a few weeks because i got to get my 12th. You're going to be back in a few weeks? Well, this is, this is episode 11. This, oh, this is because of all the craziness. This is like two weeks late. Yeah, I and I still got to do one for April as well. Or we've got to do one. So any more questions, folks, send them to questions at rotto.com. Uh, hopefully, because right now I don't really have many for the next run through. Speaking of which, well, actually, we'll come back to that in a second. You don't have right. any for the next run-through? Oh, no. The talk we'll, be, we'll be back in a moment. Okay. Okay, welcome back. And even more time has passed since we filmed. I mean, this normally, I just sit down and I record a podcast pretty much in one straight shot for however long it takes, two or three or four hours. But this, because of our circumstances, has now taken several days. And, hey, folks, breaking news update. In case you hadn't seen it officially on the Kickstarter page, we hit the podcast stretch goal. So, this is not the penultimate episode anymore. We will be doing another year of them, you know, starting in May. So, congratulations. Yay. Happy days. That is very, very good news. Because, I mean, I know a lot of people out there like it. It's a fun thing for Jen and me to do. And... That's news, but what else is also news is, well, as you gathered from earlier, it's been very, very tough going for me and Jen dealing with the loss of Tula, or Tulula, our beagle, and uh, the nice thing is, well, it's really kind of beautiful. The, it actually starts with kind of probably the most annoying thing about Malta that we have found, which is everything here is hard. Everything is challenging. Everything that we expect just to go nice and smoothly because of having grown up in America, there's always some extra hurdle you have to jump through. And the death of Tula is no different because we're, we're at the vets and they're explaining what's going to happen. And, you know, she, she's under, you know, she, she was peacefully, you know, uh, sedated uh, to, to do the exploratory operation. She fell asleep in Jen's arms, so that was very beautiful. And we know that the last thing she remembers is being held by Jen, and so that was all wonderful. And, and then we have the tough decision to make while, you know, she's sitting open on the table. We make the choice, and then we ask, well, what happens? Because we would like to have her cremated like we had done years ago with Scuttle. Uh, so we could take her with us because you know as much as we love Malta we didn't really have anything that like pulled at our heartstrings yeah this is the place where Tula should rest we want to bring Tula with us so we wanted her ashes and we asked him he said well yes that's very difficult there is only one place in all of Malta Um, you know when we were in Texas and Scuttle had died you know they just took care of everything and uh, you know they told us you can come down and get the and it was it was was a nice easy process but here they said well tell you what we can keep Keep her in the freezer for up to two days. You need to contact this place called Island Sanctuary, which is, by the way, at the far southern end of Malta. We live in Gozo at the far north end of Gozo. Uh, so literally, it's on the other side of the country from us, two hour, over two hours away to get to this place. And so we, when we have to call them and make arrangements for them to cremate Tula so we can you know, get her ashes, which is what we want to do. And so we call them and they say, oh, we are very sorry. We are, we are overbooked. Uh, could you bring her in on Friday? And this is Tuesday. And we ask the vet and they say, okay, well, we can hold her for an extra day. That's fine. They're, everybody was very nice and everybody was very sweet. Nobody's trying to make it hard. It's just like, oh my God, you know, this is the worst time for us to be having to jump through all these 
these hoops and this rigmarole. I mean, this is the last thing we want to, you know, we just want to console each other and we just want to get out of there because it was just so awful. Um, and, you know, because, well, actually they had, they had sewn Tula back up and they brought her out and Jen and I, we sat with her for about a half an hour and cried over her and all that stuff, um, which I'm not going to, I'm not going to, right, I can't really dwell on that. But anyway, so, you know, they take her and they say, well, we can keep her in the freezer. And it's like, oh, so we're going to have to be the ones that transfer her down. And it's really hard for us to do because we have to go back to Gozen, and then we have to come back all the way to Malta. It takes a whole day to do this. But we do come back on Friday and we, we pick her up and, uh, you know, they, they've, got, they've got her in a box, r- still wrapped in the same blanket. We had taken one of the blankets that she loves kind of pawing into a little bed that she sleeps in. And we just thought, oh, we're going to have to leave her there overnight. We'll keep the blanket so she'll be comfortable overnight after the surgery. And it turned out, you know, basically to be her death shroud, which... Anyway, um, so, you know, we, we pick her up and, you know, the whole thing had happened so fast. Um, you know, even with sitting with her for a half an hour, we still want to spend more time. So we actually went down to this wonderful, since we had to go all the way to the south end of the island, we went down to this little secluded bay that not very many people go, know about, not very many people go to. We'd been there before and we'd had a really wonderful day with Dob and Tula. And so we went there and we sat with her for a while more. And, you know, and it was... I guess it was kind of macabre because, you know, she was frozen solid at this point, but she still looked beautiful, you know, like she was just sleeping. And uh, so we spent some time with her and, and Jen did a paw print imprint in clay. She brought some some clay to do that. And, um, you know, Jen's making, she planned to make, well, she has, but we haven't seen them yet. We'll see how they turn out. These hollow beads that you can put keepsakes in. So Jen shaved a little bit of her fur so we could like have these memorial beads for her. And uh, so we spent a little bit more time. But anyway, then we took her to Island Sanctuary, which is a wonderful place. Um, you know, we ended up donating you know a lot of money to sponsor a lot of dogs because they were just such wonderful, wonderful, caring people. But we 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 drop her off and they say, well, yes, um, you know, it'll take us a few days. And you know, they're very they're just wonderful. Again, I, um, you know, and then, anyway, so that's it. We figure, okay, well, we'll come back in a few days. We'll get her ashes, and and that'll be it. So yet another trip we have to make to Malta. But the next day, or I think it was the day after, they call us and say, I mean, because when we were there, we were talking to them, you know, basically to keep our minds off of how grief stricken we were about the place and what they do. It's actually an old fort that has been completely converted into a dog sanctuary where all the dogs can just wander free. One of the most wonderful things about Malta is none of the dog shelters put their dogs down. They don't euthanize, so everything's a no-kill shelter. So they've just created this wonderful place for all these dogs to you know, live healthy lives and hopefully find new owners. And we had asked at the time, well, did they have any beagles? And they didn't. Um, but, you know... And, you know, they asked, well, we, we, we go for small dogs, we go for girls. And they said, well, we don't have anything like that. And, and that was fine. We didn't think any more about it. But then a couple days later, they called and said, you know, shortly after we left, a, um, a, a dog got rescued, dropped off. It apparently belonged to an elderly couple, and one of them had died, so the other one couldn't take care of her anymore. And apparently she wasn't taken very good care of anyway, this little Shih Tzu. And uh, they, girl, um, and they asked if we wanted to come down and look. And so we did. And she's an adorable, sweet little dog. And so we agreed to foster her for a couple of days and see if she'd be a good fit for me and Jen 
and Dobby. And uh, we've named her Mella because nobody knows what her name is. And, uh, you know, she seems very healthy. She's, she's just so sweet. She actually reminds us a lot of Scuttle, our lost opsa we had back when we lived in Seattle and Oregon. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's tough going. It's, it's kind of hard. I mean, we can look at her and we intellectually know that she's a perfect fit for us. She's exactly what we need in a dog. But she's not Tula, and Tula's an impossible dog to replace. So we're still thinking about it. But, sorry, it just says an aside, that's the update. As this epic podcast just keeps getting filmed through all these little snippets. Um, but don't worry, we will get back to game shortly, folks. Uh, hold on. Okay, everybody. Time to talk about games. What are the new games that have popped up on my games of interest since the last time, since the February? Because this is a this is the March podcast. Uh, so since February, what has shown up? Actually, surprisingly, not that many. But I do got a few games that I can talk about, several of which I saw at the Gamma Trade Show. For starters, we've got Colony from Bezier Games and designer Ted Oswalk. Although, actually, this is a re-implementation of an earlier game called Age of Craft, which was a Japanese uh, Euro-style resource management game. Ted has you know, brought it over. It's been rethemed. He's worked with the original designer to tweak the design and whatnot. And now he's got Colony. And the reason there's two reasons I'm super excited about this. One... It's from Bezier Games. And Castles of Mad King Ludwig, Suburbia, Subdivision, these games have all been incredibly phenomenal. And while this is not necessarily a true sequel in that line of games, I did actually talk to Ted about it briefly at Gamma, and he says, for him, it does feel like this is a worthy successor because this is about building, um, I believe, I'm not quite sure where it's set. I think it's like on Mars or something like that. But basically building a colony, resource management, you know, getting all the stuff you need to build factories and whatnot. But here's the other reason I'm excited. Not only because of Bezier Games and Ted Allspock, who have just been on fire. Oh, uh, Favor of the Pharaoh was also phenomenal, also from Bezier Games. So they are um, firing on all cylinders. But the other reason I'm excited about this is it's a dice drafting game. And if you heard my top 10 of 2015 or even my top uh, 10 update for 2015 run-through videos, you know dice drafting has fast become probably my, just about my favorite game mechanism of all time. I absolutely love it. And so here's another one that finds a new and interesting way to make it happen. So... Not surprisingly, I am super stoked for Colony. Next up, we've got Via Nebula, which actually I had known about for quite a while, but I had I'd been hesitant to put it on the uh, geek list originally because it's from designer Martin Wallace, who is an amazing designer. I mean, he's just made so many wonderful, wonderful games. But Martin Wallace always seems... I always worry because his games seem to work really, really well if you have more than two. And the two-player rules always almost seem to be kind of an afterthought. And, uh, you know, most recently, that was definitely the case for ships, I thought. And, you know, it's been the case over and over again. So I was, for me, the jury was out on Via Nebula because I thought, well, maybe this is going to be yet another case where he, you know, makes a really great multiplayer game, but then doesn't spend as much time fine-tuning the two-player. Well, this was another game I ran into while I was at um, Gamma in Vegas. And, man... 
This seems like a phenomenal game. I'm actually super stoked about it now, and I'm very, I have a high level of confidence that this will work well with two. And anytime a Martin Wallace game will work well with two, I'm going to be there with bells on. This is basically kind of like a streamlined, almost gateway version of the Steam or Age of Steam or Railways of the World network route building games that he has done. You know, so well over the years. He's now making, taking those same kind of rules, you know, building roads that will let you move goods from one place to another so that you can build up, you know, more and more infrastructure to make more and more points. That whole system that he does so nicely has now been given a really lovely um, setting. You know, you'll have to see the pictures. It just looks absolutely gorgeous. And I saw the prototype at Gamma. It looks so nice. And with really smooth, fast, streamlined rules, very, very excited about this one via Nebula. Okay, next up, another one. Now, this one I didn't even know about till I went to Gamma. It's called Attack on Titan, the deck-building game. And I'd already known about Attack on Titan, and I think I even talked about that in an earlier podcast earlier in the year, leading into Gen Con, if I recall correctly. But Attack on Titan, which, and that is a full-on board game where you have a vertical board where players are actually climbing up the Titans. If you're not familiar with Attack on Titan, it's a very, very popular Japanese anime series. It's been made into live action. It's been being made on video games, and so it's getting board game treatment as well, where these giants are basically attacking this these small villages and... Um, Humans have to wear kind of like jump pack sort of things to take them down. And so the full game has you climbing up these giants in real time. It looks very, or not in real time, but during gameplay, and it seems very, very cool. But the deck building game, based on Attack of Titan, I think is even more exciting. And now, you can watch my Gamma run-through video I did, because I actually talked to the designer of it at great length, and he goes into a lot of detail. But this is a deck building game. Where, yeah, you're building a deck, but it's all to drive an actual physical character who moves around the board and actually fights the Titans. And the, um, you know, it uses an Ascension or Legendary or Sh- uh, Shadowrun Crossfire style means of buying new cards and putting them in your deck. You know, there's always new cards coming out and you're, you're on this stream. But those cards that are coming out actually represent the walls protecting the city. So, or no, actually, I'm sorry, they represent the buildings inside the city. So as you're, you know, constructing or building or basically building up your deck, you're also, you're, you're doing it such that you can power up your little character so he can go to the other side of the wall and actually move around from Titan to Titan and fight them. It's really, really cool. And actually, I think what's most exciting, Jen, I love deck builders, but deck builders, by their very nature, are always very abstracted. You're always just like some, you're some prince or whatever you might be, and you don't actually have a physical presence in the world. This game melds that physical presence, plus it's a cooperative game as well. So I am super, super stoked for Attack on Titan, the deck builder. And then we've got The Last Ruin, the next game coming from designer Lion Rocket Locket, who uh, previously did you know Islebound and Above and Below. In fact, this is effectively a sequel to Above and Below. It used to have a different name that um, you know made it sound like you know it was like you know Below and Beyond or something. I forget what they originally, but they changed it to The Last Ruin. But it is still a sequel where in Above and Below we built these villages. Now we are going to venture out and travel the land. And while I don't know anything about the gameplay mechanisms, I know this is him once again going back to do 
another thick storybook-style gameplay thing where you, you play a Euro game, which is what he makes, but you get to read story snippets that you make decisions that will affect the Euro-style gameplay. That works so well above and below. And when I talked to him at Gamma, he said he learned a lot of lessons making above and below. And he's applied those lessons to this game, so this one should be even better. And seeing as how above and below made my top 10 of the year when I did my updated 2015... Oh, spoiler if you haven't seen my updated 2015 top 10. I'm even more excited for The Last Ruin. And then next up, we've got Tentacles of Time, which is a sequel to Tides of Time, which was this little two-player microgame that came out last year at Gen Con. And it, a lot of people got very, very excited about it uh, because it's a card-drafting game. You know, like Seven Wonders. And everybody's like, oh my god, a card-drafting game that works well with two! That's impossible! I didn't know such a thing existed. Whereas Gen, I, we've loved card-drafting games for a long time as two-player games. There's a bunch of them out there that work fantastically. And so... We thought, wow, can't wait to see this Tides of Time. And ultimately, we did play it. And we thought it was a very, very good game. But it is super-duper light. It's like Sushi Go light. And I think it's a little bit lighter than what Jen and I are tending to look for in um, a, a drafting game. And you know, while we thought it was very cool, we can't imagine we would play it over Notre Dame or Seven Wonders or something like that. So while it didn't necessarily... you know stick with us. I'm still excited because the core gameplay mechanisms were really, really good. And it was beautiful. And now there's Tentacles of Time, which I believe is a standalone game, but they can also function as an expansion for Tides of Time. And there are now new gameplay elements that have to do with like not descending into madness. And considering the fact that you can descend into madness and tentacles is in the title, you got to assume there's going to be some kind of Lovecraftian, you know, thematic stuff working its way in, which is cool and fun. I mean, I, I think it, it sounds like it's going to have kind of a cheeky view of it to, you know, try and squeeze that into a traditional, you know, card drafting Euro. But the fact that it's going to take the base game, which was solid, but just too light for me and Jen, maybe it'll put some more meat on those bones and we'll enjoy the Tides of Time series as much as everybody else does. So that's why I'm excited for Tentacles of Time. And then next up, we've got Thrashing Dice Assassin Edition. And this is interesting because this is a re-implementation of a game that just came out last year called Thrash and Roll. Remember, I did a run-through for the prototype of it, and Jen and I loved it. It's a dice worker placement game uh, set in the world of thrash metal music where you are a band manager and you're trying to you know, get, you make the best musicians you can and have them put on shows and record albums and basically you know, work their way up you know, the Billboard Top 100 effectively to score lots of points. A phenomenal game. Really, really wonderful. Rock-solid gameplay. And now the designer has re-implemented it with, you know, and um, you know, made tweaks to it, and he's, he's releasing this new version. And the nice thing is, well, if you missed the original, you can get this new one. But if you're like me and Jen, you got the original, he is going to be releasing an upgrade pack so that effectively Assassin Edition is, for all intents and purposes, going to be an expansion if you get the upgrade pack. Or if you missed the original, you can get Assassin Edition. So I think that's actually really cool. I'm very excited because the core game was so great. It was just such rock solid. And you can see my run-through to find out why we liked it so much. Then we've got Kingdom Builder Harvest. Yet another Kingdom Builder expansion. Oh, man, Kingdom Builder is so good. I don't even know what's new with this one. But, you know, they've all been good so far. So I'm excited about that. And then, okay, just two more. Next up, High Treason, The Trial of Lewis Rail. I don't know how you... R-I-E-L. Now... I have to admit, I've never heard of The Trial of, of Lewis Rail, but apparently it's an incredibly famous one. Uh, huge milestone in Canadian history. 
And, um, you know, and, and the, the U.S. was involved, and it, it was all about their expansion westward and all that. And so basically, this is a historical recreation of that famous historical trial, where I guess one player is the uh, prosecution and one player is the defense. And it's a card game where players are trying to deduce what, the, what their opponents are going to do, and it follows all the steps of a trial. You have jury selection, which I, I, I don't really know, but I'm going to assume is some kind of card draft. And then you've got the cards playing, and you know one player's trying to defend Lewis, and one player's trying to prosecute him. Even if it had absolutely nothing to do with this famous historical trial, I just like the idea of this, of actually recreating a trial in card game format. How cool is that? I can't wait to see if it works. But then on top of that, if Jen and I have the opportunity to learn some real important history as well, sign me up. That could be absolutely phenomenal. Uh, That's coming from Victory Point Games. High Treason, the trial of Lewis Ryle. Or Lewis Reel, maybe. And the last one I'm going to talk about is Valley of the Kings Last Rites. Now, Valley of the Kings uh, actually came out from AEG, I think, a couple of years ago. And Jen and I only recently played it for the first time and thought it was a phenomenal little deck builder. Ta- you know, Big game in a little box, really clever take on standard deck building tropes. We thought it was really, really nice. And um, we, we got the first expansion. And now... There's another expansion coming. And so I think it's a no-brainer because the core game is so great. My only worry is the base game and the first expansion, which also functions as a standalone game, those all fit in one box. Uh, There is not room in the original Valley of Kings box to fit a third expansion. So I'm really hoping this Last Rites, the new expansion, comes in a bigger box so that we can squeeze all of the cards into one box. Fingers crossed. And that's really all I've got to say about that. And that's it, folks. That's what's new. And if you hold on a second, we'll come back and we'll talk about some recent top tens. Okay, welcome back. Now it's time to talk about recent top tens. And I have got two to talk about this month. Top 10 Pick Up and Deliver and Top 10 Economic. Both of which I had the distinct pleasure of doing with Tom Vassell and Jason Levine. It was an absolute blast. And, man, these ones, not surprisingly, got a lot of hits and generated a lot of feedback. So let's uh, do Pick Up and Deliver first. Man, so many people disagreed with my assessment of Forbidden Desert as being Pick Up and Deliver. And and I don't know what to say. I mean, I, I think in the video I made it pretty clear that my personal view of what makes pick up and deliver is you have a character who exists in the world you are not some abstracted manager type Uh, you actually exist you physically move around the world you move to place x you pick up thing y and you take it to place z that is picking up and then delivering if you do all three of those things, you're a pick up and deliver as far as I'm concerned. And obviously, a lot of people vehemently disagree with that. And I don't understand how, because it's kind of in the name. I picked up the pieces and I delivered them where they need to go. If I don't do that, I die. I mean, but still, because there are so many people who have responded on Reddit, on YouTube, on BoardGameGeek. I mean, just everywhere. I got personal emails about this. That Forbidden Desert is not pick up and deliver. Not on my watch. That, okay, if I had not included that on the list, although, for the record, I still do believe it's pick up and deliver. Of all the arguments I heard as to why it's not pick up and deliver, I think the one that had the most resonance with me was uh, somebody on YouTube pointed out that 
you don't have any choices. You have to pick up and deliver, I mean, if, if, you, if you want to call it that, everything, and you have to deliver everything to the same place. Now, first of all, that, that, the same place thing doesn't really have any particular meaning to me because, heck, in Akrotiri, which nobody had a problem with me calling that pick up and deliver, you zip all over the place, you pick stuff up, and you take it back to the same place, to a central island. Some people said, oh, because you deliver at the end of the game, it doesn't count. But you know what? The end of the game is still during the game. That is still doing the act of delivering during game. I'm sorry. Uh, um, long story short, I disagree. To me, it feels like I am going out into the world, picking something up, and taking it somewhere else. If it achieves that feel, then it's pick up and deliver to me. That's why it made the list. But if I had left it off the list, the number 11 that would have made it into the number 10 slot probably probably would have been Destination Neptune, which is a very, very cool game. And in all honesty, with hindsight, I almost should have brought that one up because I know Tom doesn't like it. Um, And so it would have been interesting to maybe have a little bit of back and forth about the merit of that game. But yeah, that didn't even occur to me at the time. It only occurred to me afterwards. But this uh, Destination Neptune is actually a very, very cool game. All about you know a realistic view of mankind's near future exploration and exploitation of the solar system, and a big big part of the game is planning and um, you know completing missions to send ships to the asteroid belt, to Mars, to moons of Jupiter. Uh, you know, depending on how far out you go, to the moon, and um, taking with you workers who will build colonies in those spots. So you are actually picking up and delivering these astronauts, for lack of a better term. Now, I don't know, maybe some people have a problem with that because all the astronauts get picked up from the same place, Earth, and you actually carry them. Although, to be fair, there are some characters who you can actually pick up in one place. Okay, we were done building the thing, and let's move them out to someplace else. So I think, I don't imagine that's going to have much problem. I think people will be pretty comfortable with that. And it's a neat game. You can watch my run-through to see why. And yeah, I'm actually kind of regretting not having brought it up because I would have loved to debate that one with Tom because I know he really disliked it. But um, so let's consider that. Oh, another topic that came up quite a bit. Nowhere near as much as, hey, Forbidden Desert, come on. That's not a pick up and deliver. Well, I can agree to disagree. But some people asked about Keyflower because, and you know what? That is one I thought about, I strongly considered. But in the end... The reason I didn't put it on the list is not because it does have pick up and deliver. Unlike Railways of the World or Steam or Age of Steam, which to me, as I said in the video, are not pick up and deliver games. They are route building games. You build a route and then the people of the world, the people of Cincinnati, use the route you've built to deliver stuff on their own. You yourself do not actually move around in the world and pick stuff up. Now in Keyflower, you kind of do. You have this concept of a cart that is moving stuff from one place to another. But even and still, that cart doesn't exist on the board. So it doesn't... It, I don't feel like I personally, as a character in the game world, am moving through space to get to point A to then take an item or, or lumber or whatever it might be and deliver it to point B to achieve whatever goal I have. And then as well, the other thing about Keyflower is you can actually be very, very successful in Keyflower never really using the cart at all. And so I'd have a hard time calling it out as one of the best pick-up-and-deliver games of all time when you could actually win the game not actually doing any pick-up-and-deliver. I think you kind of have to have pick-up-and-deliver be part of the core experience. So um, that was 
that was kind of interesting, and uh, I had a really fun time talking about Pick Up and Deliver. Apologies to everybody. Uh, several people were upset that um, Jason and Tom and I spent as much time as we did arguing about the very definition of Pick Up and Deliver. It was interesting. You know, I, I, I broached it with Tom over lunch. Hey, do we want to get our story straight about what Pick Up and Deliver is? And I don't think he wanted to, or at least he didn't want to. He, he welcomed the fact that we would have differing opinions and differing views of what even makes it because he, like me, likes to debate, likes to um, you know, have friendly arguments about this kind of stuff. And you know, I had a blast making that video. I loved you know, doing the back and forth and, and all that. So anyway, that was Pick Up and Deliver. The other top 10 we did, and we did both of these back to back. First we did the Pick Up and Deliver, then we did top 10 economic games. And as I said in the video, man, this was a really, really hard one for me to do. Because it's interesting, you know, people often talk about what is the difference between Ameritrash and Euro style game, you know, and you know the, the lines are blurring all the time, left to right and center, you know, between all these games. It's becoming a meaningless thing. Now, for me and Jen, I still think the labels of Euro and Ameritrash are very you know, very concrete. If you say a game is a Euro, I have a pretty clear idea of what I expect that game to be. And the same, if you say it's an Ameritrash, I have an idea. And by the way, as I always say whenever I say the word Ameritrash, I'm not using that as a pejorative. It is just the widely, commonly accepted term among fans of that gameplay style. The fans call it Ameritrash, so I call it Ameritrash. Fortress Ameritrash calls it Ameritrash, so I call it Ameritrash. Boom, got that out of the way. Uh, but there's nothing bad about it. I mean, Ameritrash games are very, very cool, and I understand why some people like them. Jen, I just don't tend to enjoy them. Anyway... For me, I've actually realized that you know, Euros are our favorite game, and what is the thing that the through, the you know the 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 common element that makes a game a Euro that makes a good Euro a good Euro? They're all economic simulations because in economy, I mean, all three of us, Tom, me, and Jason, we all had a tough time trying to you know narrow down right. What is an economic game? Because pretty much every single euro on the market, with very, very few exceptions. I mean, Settlers of Catan is an economic game. Um, and that was going to be such a huge, broad swathe of 90% of all the games I play that it might have... I was just practically just going to make my top 10 list. I was, and, you know, and that was not interesting. So for myself, I tended to focus, and Tom did kind of the same thing. For us, the definition of what made an economic game was something that didn't... I mean, economics is about more than just money. It's more, it's more than just making money. But we chose to focus on games about making money. And now, you may get money in a lot of games. But for us, not all of them would necessarily be an economic game because the money is only a, a needs to an end, or the, making the money is only a small part of the game. For us, the money had to be the primary motivating factor for what you were doing. And that's how we came... I'm just basically repeating what we said in the video. But um, you know, a lot of people were kind of surprised by a lot of the choices we made there, too. But... Um, Honestly, I'm pretty happy with that list I made. Let me pull it back up here again really quick. I just want to look at it one more time. Let's see. Where was that? Top 10 economic games. Um, right. There we go. So I had... Yeah. Now, I should say, I didn't necessarily stay 100% true to my defining list either because Millennium Blades, which was my number seven... It's really not about making money. It is more of a proper 
definition of what an economic game is. You know, you know economics are just about the, um, the transfer of goods um, and services. That, that is what an economy is. Money is part of it. Money is not the be-all end of it. But that's why I narrowed down on money. But then when I did Millennium Blades, I kind of cheated. And I, I kind of cheated on Kashgar because Kashgar is less about money and more about goods. Although really, in that game, the goods are basically just a different form of money. So I'll stick with it. But... There, I did make, I would like to go on record and apologize profusely. I made a huge oversight. And now this is because I was making this list, uh, both of these lists, in fact, on the hour-long drive from Jason's place to Tom's place. And I, all I had was my iPhone, which had spotty reception. I was just trying to look games up. I was going by memory. I'm, I'm still pretty happy with my final list. Oh, it's okay. Dob, dob, dob. Settle down. It's okay, Dob. Settle down. We uh, had to take Dob. It's, uh, it's, it's the next day. We had to take Dob to the vet today. And so she had to be sedated because we had to pull out a couple more of her teeth. And so she um, keeps trying to get up, even though, I mean, she is completely zonked out. Dob, you can't get up. You can't walk around. Jen has now come out. Oh, no, oh, there she goes. All right. She is bound and determined to get back up, even though she can't open her eyes. All right. She's going to go be with Jen. Bye, Dob. Oh, man. It has been... In an absolutely insane week. Um, but Dobbs doing great. Uh, oh, for me, I, I, uh, uh, Mela, we've had her overnight now. Uh, Jen did not get any sleep. I mean, she seems really, really good. Uh, the little Shih Tzu Mela. She seems to have kind of an obsessive scratching thing going on. And we're a little bit worried about that. And in part, it's because, again, we, we our understanding is she was pretty neglected by her previous owner. I'm sure they loved her, and I'm sure they did right by her as best they could, but they were an elderly couple. And so apparently she spent a lot of her first three years of her life very bored and developed a really bad licking herself habit and a scratching herself habit. So we're trying to see if we can break her of that. Um, but otherwise, she really seems like a little sweetheart, a little angel. She's adorable. She's got a really good temperament. She's peed a few times in the house. That's kind of bothersome, but, but things are going well. It's, you know, the outlook is looking positive for Mella, but we won't know uh, basically until later this week. We have to make our final decision. Right now, we're just fostering her. We're not committed yet. Because, you know, people say you're not supposed to make a decision like this in a time of grief. And Jen and I, we're still grieving. I mean, we, we're still breaking down and crying at least once a day when, you know, when we just, when our mind, the, this, no, I'm not going to talk about the sad thing because I'm, I've already talked about this enough. All right. Anyway, sorry. Um, top 10 economic games. So somebody pointed out to me, one that I missed, and I am royally, I'm almost ticked with myself for not thinking of this, because to me, it definitely fit the, the, the niche of, and I think, I think this probably would have come in maybe at my number six, maybe at my number five, maybe even at my number four, and I cannot believe I forgot the Gnomes of Zavendor which is a wonderful economic simulation about gnomes who, you know, it's a proper, it's got a fluctuating market as the, the values of gems go up and down and you're, you're mining for new gems and you're trying to buy them and sell them and, and, um, you know, and then use all that money you make to get really awesome tools that make you more effective so you can just increase your overall economic engine. It is a delightful game. And I am so embarrassed that I did not call it out. I really did them um, a disservice because it, it would it would easily at least have made my number seven which I guess means Spectaculum got pushed off the list I don't know but uh, uh, my apologies to everybody who's responsible for Gnomes of Zavendor 
it is officially in my top 10 economic games of all time. And it pushes out either Spectacular or Ground Floor. I'd have to think about that more. Because I do realize um, that I was kind of playing fast and loose. It's interesting, I almost started making my top 10 business simulations by talking about Ground Floor and Pret-a-Porte and oh, what was the other one? Um, I guess really those two. Oh, and Vinos. But, you know, I, I'm happy with the list for the most part, but, oh, I'm still slapping myself upside the head for missing Zomes of, Gnomes of Zavador. I've done a run-through for it. I strongly suggest, you know, you can find this game super cheap when you can find it because it, it just didn't catch on fire. It just, like, flew under the radar, and that's a shame because it's a sharp, sharp game. Check out my run-through for more. And that's it, folks. Next time, I will be talking about uh, two more Top 10s, my Top 10 Exploration, which just went up this week. And I'm hoping, if all goes well, later this week, I'm going to be putting up my other Top 10, although this will come out before then, my Top 10 Solo Games. And I had so much fun um, doing my the, the two Top 10s I just talked about with um, some guest celebrity hosts that my Top 10 Solo Games, I will be having another... By celebrity, I mean another board game YouTube video blogger like myself. Um, we're going to have another celebrity guest host. There'll be a surprise. I'm really, really excited to be working with them. And you can listen for that coming shortly in the next couple days. If we can work out our schedules, I might have to do a, one of those 2 a.m. or 3 a.m.s, but I really want to do this because I'm really stoked about it. And that'll be top 10 solo games and top 10 uh, exploration. I just did that. And in a few weeks, in the next, in podcast number 12, we'll talk about those. But... That's it, folks. Hold on. Okay, everybody. If you're still listening, hope you've had a good time. Um, my apologies for anybody who was kind of taken aback by all the personal stuff that went on in this podcast, but you just happened to catch us at a kind of a really, at a very um, momentous time in our lives. You know, a lot of stuff's happening. You know, obviously, the Kickstarter's still going. It's, it's looking great. Uh, it's going to be finishing this April 17th. We just started a contest on it, actually, today. Just like the contest I did last year. I'm very, very excited about that. So the way it works is, for every five bucks you back me, you get one ticket in a Rotto Runs Through giveaway that is going to happen two weeks after the Kickstarter is over. Now, this is very important. I reiterate this in update number four on the Kickstarter page, and I'll reiterate now. This has nothing to do with Kickstarter. This contest is completely divorced from the Rotto Runs Through Kickstarter. This is being run by Jennifer.net. It's, uh, it'll, it'll be posted on Jennifer.net. The results will be posted. Jennifer.net will contact. It has absolutely nothing to do with Kickstarter. It's very important because Kickstarter has rules about being affiliated with contests. It's just that after Kickstarter is over, I'm going to have a list of people's names. And um, for everybody who backed me at 5 or 10 or 15 or 20, they'll get one or two or three or four tickets that is going to happen in this sweepstakes that has absolutely nothing to do with Kickstarter. Right. Okay, so we got that. This is what is necessary to be able to have a Kickstarter or, a, or you know, um, a, J a Kickstarter adjacent contest. Now, what do you win in the contest? It's very, very cool. The guys at Action Phase Games, they have offered up 
three copies of any game you might want from their library, and they've got a really, really cool library. I mean, you know, they they you know came out swinging with Heroes Wanted, but they did Kodama, they did Ninja Camp, they did Scoundrel Society, um, and coming up. Later this year, they're going to have Aeon's End, which Jen and I recently did a run-through for, and absolutely love that game. So they've got a lot of really, really, Retreat to Darkmoor, they've got a lot of really cool games. A very wide variety of games. And if you are the winner in this sweepstakes, you will get to pick one of their games, plus you will get one more wild card backer level, as if you had backed at one level higher. So, uh, and the extra bonus for that is, Jen said, for P- whoever wins the contest, uh, if they use that wild card level to get an ogre die, you will get a special limited edition color ogre die that'll be different than the normal green ogre dice that she does. So, that's very, very cool. But then, now I just found this, I haven't even put this up on the Kickstarter page yet. Need to do that. Uh, I just found out a couple hours ago that Artipia Games, who provided the games for last year's contest, they said they are also going to put in three copies of their new second edition printing of Pursuit of Happiness, which is an excellent, wonderful little worker placement game. I've already done a run-through for it. Uh, It's got the Maltese connection because it was done by a designer here in Malta, a friend of mine, in fact. And Jen and I, we absolutely adore the game. Second edition's coming out. It's got a bunch of nice little tweaks and enhancements. Uh, I, although I have to admit, I don't know what. I've asked him what's new in the second edition, other than a different box cover. But so the, uh, there are actually, the, unlike last year where we had three winners, this year we're going to have six winners. Three, all, all six winners will get the extra wild card bonus, which could be the limited edition ogre die. Plus, three of the winners will get their choice of a game from. Action Phases Game Catalog, and the other three will get a copy of Pursuit of Happiness from Artipia Games. All of these will be sent free of charge to anybody anywhere in the world, doesn't matter where you are, and um, all you gotta do is back me, at, if you back it at least $5, you know, uh, you will get one ticket and you're entered to win one of these six. So, yay, that is very, very cool, very, very exciting, and it's gonna, I, I can't wait to find out who wins and what they do with those extra wild cards they're going to back. And you know what, folks? I think we're going to stop it right there uh, because Jen is now getting ready. In a couple days, she is going to be flying out to England, and I'm not going to be seeing her for another 10 days. In fact, it's kind of a bummer. She's not going to be here when the Kickstarter closes. She's not even going to be here for our 25th wedding anniversary. (laughs) She is going to be in England instead, if you can believe that. And what is she going to be doing there? Among other things, making all the water jet meeples for all the backers of the Kickstarter campaign, because she can't do those here in Malta. She has to do them in England. So, you know what? Um, I'd originally planned on talking about my adventures in Florida and Vegas, but I think I'm going to leave that to episode 12, the last podcast of of year four of Rotto Runs Through. I'll talk about it then, because right now I think I need to spend some more time with Jen and with Dobby and with little Mella, who's looking at me right now with her little snaggletooth grin. She's got a very pronounced, um, what do you call it, underbite. You know, her lower jaw struts out adorable little thing and so i look forward to talking to you guys more guys and gals in a few weeks remember as always questions go to questions at rotto.com hopefully we'll have a few for the next we'll talk about those top tens we'll see what other other new games and uh that's it folks 
Thanks for listening. Questions, comments, concerns, as always, let me know. Otherwise, hope you have a very, very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye.